Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kevin Gladding. I am the minister at Sutherland Presbyterian Reformed Church, and the saints there send you greeting in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, our sermon passage this morning is from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 1, in verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and before I even read the text this morning, let me pray that the Lord would help us understand what we hear. Let's pray. O Lord our God, when we in awesome wonder consider all that your hands have made, we are dumbfounded, we are struck so that we can barely speak. For you, the God who are high and mighty, the God who is over all things, have still taken care and seen fit to attend to the concerns and the cares of men and women. You who are transcendent are also imminent, and for that we give you praise. And, O oh God, you have spoken. You have not left us to try to puzzle out who you are. You have not left us to grope forward in the dark. You have given us the light of your word. And so would you this morning give your spirit into our midst that we might see clearly what it is you have said. Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts to receive? May your spirit take all of your words and apply them to each heart here in whatever way is needful for them. Whether your people are in need of comfort, whether they are in need of conviction of sin, or whether there are those here this morning who are not yet your people who need to be converted. Oh God, would you do all the work that needs doing? And may the preaching of your word be pleasing in your sight. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 11. Brothers and sisters, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word for you this morning. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruit of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. If you've not been paying attention to the things that you do and the ways in which we live, then allow me to remind you of something, and that is this, that we are obsessed with identifying ourselves. We're obsessed with it, right? We identify ourselves by the clothing that we wear, what particular group we belong to or would like to belong to. We identify ourselves by the vehicles we choose to drive. If you didn't know this, if you drive a Jeep Wrangler, 
Everyone who drives a Jeep Wrangler waves at you. Everyone is called the Wrangler Wave. You belong to a community. We're constantly updating our status on Facebook. We're constantly uploading images to Instagram. We're constantly trying to present an image of ourselves in one way or another because, let's face it, identity is important. We want to make sure that we see people the way they want to be seen and that they see us the same way. Identity is important, and if you have ever had or know someone who has had their identity stolen, then you know just how important identity is. But brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that what identifies us most is not what we wear, is not the school we went to or the school we go to, is not the group of friends we hang out with or the vehicles we drive, it's not the job that we do, it's not even the licenses or passports that we carry, though those are important. What identifies us centrally, what identifies us at our foundation, is our place in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what identifies us. That's who we are. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. It's a small church. It's a little band of people who are hounded and harassed by a people who are persecuted, by a people who find themselves surrounded by a fairly large pagan metropolis, not unlike Brisbane or Sydney. It's a small group of people who find themselves in need of the reminder, who are you? And so Paul begins this way. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Paul's opening identification of himself is not, in this case, Paul the Apostle, though sometimes it is. Paul's opening identification to the brethren, to all of the saints in Philippi, is precisely this, I'm a slave of Jesus. That's what identifies me. That's what makes me who I am. The idea of bondservant is the idea of slave, not in the modern sense necessarily in which we tend to think of it, the chattel slavery. There's none of that baggage in what Paul is talking about here. But what he is talking about is that primarily and fundamentally there is one reality for him that makes him who he is, and that is his connection with Jesus Christ. That's it. As one commentator has put it, this statement, this opening statement that seems so simple and quite frankly is nothing more than standard in terms of its greeting, this statement is meant to highlight not Paul and Timothy, but Jesus. That's what it does. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Paul is happy to be a servant. He's happy to call himself a slave because he knows who the master is. He understands what it means to belong to the one who has loved him before the foundation of the world. He understands what it means to be in and to be united to him who has given his life for a sinner like Paul was and is. Paul understands the fundamental reality of his identity is not his Jewishness. It's not his Roman citizenship, though that is important too. The fundamental identifying reality for Paul is just this, I belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. Because, of course, slaves, bondservants, belong to the ones that they serve. That's what makes them bondservants. That's what makes them slaves. When they go and they do business and they interact with others, they do so on behalf of the master, in the name of the master, with the goal of the honor of the master in mind. 
That's the image here. Paul is, is completely in agreement with the wording of the first answer and question to the Heidelberg Catechism that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul understands that. Paul pleads that. Paul identifies himself as that. If you know the Master, if you know the Lord, if you know what he has done for you, Paul is saying, then there is really only one identification because what's true for Paul and Timothy is true for all of God's people. Paul has no conception that he and Timothy are bondservants, but the people in Philippi get to be something else. That he and Timothy are are slaves of Christ, but somehow the people in Philippi are above him. That's not the way this works. When Paul calls himself and Timothy bondservants, he's introducing himself and Timothy as those who share within the bondservanthood, if you will, of the entire church of Jesus Christ. That there is one Lord, one Master, over the entirety of all of God's people. Every single one of God's people then shares in the heritage and the inheritance and the beautiful reality and identity of being a servant of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have a problem, I think, remembering this. We have a problem with reckoning with this. First of all, we don't like the language of servanthood, the language of slavery. It's culturally chafing at best. It's antiquated, and quite frankly, it feels a little bit oppressive. Paul simply hasn't learned the post-enlightenment ability to throw off the shackles of enslavement. And so we hear this language, and we're not fond of what we hear, but beloved, Paul's whole point in this is to highlight the reality that there is a master that is worthy of serving. There is a master who has done more for you than any master has ever done for any servant. That there is a master who is so good, so beautiful, so perfect, so true, so loving, so glorious, that you would be a fool to serve anyone else. You would be a fool to look anywhere else. Why? Why turn away and go to that which does not satisfy? Why do you spend your money on what is not bread? Come to me and eat what is good. and Delight yourself in the richest affair. That's what Paul is calling the Philippian church to. He identifies himself and Timothy and by implication and extension, the church itself as those who are servants of Jesus Christ. We need to get rid of any notion that we have that somehow we can rise above the, the status of being a servant, and that, or that we should rise above the status of being a servant. We never do, we never will, and there is no need to. There is no need to. You and I, if we are in Christ, are the servants of Christ. But here's, here's the beautiful thing. After identifying himself as a bond servant, after, after giving this stark and, and incredible image of belonging to Jesus Christ, what does Paul say? He goes on then to greet the Philippian church and he says what? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Here's the incredible thing. To be a bondservant of Jesus Christ is to be a saint in Jesus Christ. I didn't hear any gasps, so let me say this again. To be a bondservant 
of Jesus Christ is to be a saint in Jesus Christ. (gasps) There it is. Do you understand what Paul is saying? Paul has just said to this church in Philippi, to this group of people, who one of whom was you know, a seller of purple dyed cloth, another of whom was the keeper of a jail, not the highest, most wonderful people that you necessarily want to associate with. He says to them, you are holy. You're the holy ones. Because that's, of course, what saint means. The Greek word that we tend to translate as saints is the word that means holy ones. To all of those who are holy in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means to be distinct. To be devoted to something. Right? We tend to use the word set apart and that's true. But the idea of setting apart is of course also combined with the idea of consecration. Of setting apart to a purpose. And that purpose is to the glory and praise of God. That's what it means to be a holy one. That in Christ you have been called out of darkness. Called into God's wonderful light. And set apart into the glory and praise of God. Which of course is what we see in verse 12. Isn't it? To the glory and praise of God. That's the purpose. That's what it means to be a saint. And of course, the idea of holiness also carries with it the ideas of of purity and of beauty. Psalm 96, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. It carries with it that idea. It carries with it the idea of splendor, of splendiferousness, of splendorousness. Both are words, by the way. It carries with it the idea that you are actually radiant. People of Everton Park, brothers and sisters, beloved of God in Christ, from where I stand, you're glowing. You're glowing. Because Christ has rendered you holy. If you are in him, you are not one who must work to be a saint, but one who is, by virtue of your identity in Christ, already a saint. Just as Paul's primary identification of himself is not as a Roman citizen or a Jewish rabbi, but rather as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, so it is that Paul's primary identification of the Philippian church is not as those who are members of the community of Philippi, but as those who are holy in Christ Jesus. And you have to understand that in the ancient world, especially in the first century mind, the polis, the city, the community, if you will, was the center of one's being. If one lost the polis, one lost it all. And that's the great deal about being part of this church that says we no longer associate in the way with the polis that we once did. We no longer are part of Babylon. We are now part of Zion. And Paul says, but when you do it, when you have given up your primary identification as being Philippian and moved your primary identification to being saints in Christ, you have not lost anything, you have gained You have gained everything. Paul calls the Philippians holy ones and says to them, you are splendorous. And if you don't believe me, then you can go to chapter 2. You can go to chapter 2 where Paul says that when when we hold forth the word of life, that we shine like lights in the world. You can go to John 8 and you'll see Jesus' I am statement where he says, I am the light of the world. But then turn to Matthew 5 and what does Jesus say? You are the light of the world. Why? Because you are in Christ, who is the light of the world. You cannot help but glow 
Light, by definition, shines. That's all it does. If it stops shining, it's not light. And so if you remain in Christ, if you are, in fact, united to him, that you cannot help but be what it is that Christ has made you to be. All of you who are in Christ are saints. Sainthood is not for office bearers. It's not for miracle workers. Kids, it's not for grown-ups. It's for all of you who will name the name of Christ, who will put your faith in him, who will understand him to be the Lord and master over all things and the one who has given his own life to save you from sin. Who are you? You are the saints in Everton Park. That's who you are. That's your primary identification. Yes, you. You who yell at your spouses unnecessarily. I really don't know that there is a necessary reason to yell at your spouse, unless it's watch out. Um, You kids who are in Christ, who sometimes don't always respond to your parents the way you should. You people who have your licenses, whether L plates or no plates, who are always angry at everybody else on the road except yourself. You people who are suspicious, you people who are judgmental, you people who struggle with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, you're saints. You're saints in spite of it. You're saints in spite of it because Christ has died to make you this. You're not second-rate saints. You are simply part of the body of those whom Christ has called his. It's staggering. Isn't it? It's staggering. You who were once hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, pursuing the lusts of this world, enslaved to the elementary powers of this world, you who deserved God's displeasure, you are his holy ones if you are in Christ. And maybe you say, but that's not possible. It's not, it's not me. I've, you don't know what I've done. And to which I would say to you, I don't know what you've done, but I do know what Christ has done. I do know what Christ has done, and what Christ has done is always sufficient to forgive, to atone, to propitiate, to satisfy, and to redeem. Always. What Christ has done is always sufficient that you might also be called a saint in Christ. Whatever fear you have, whatever tendency to doubt the holiness that God would give you in Christ comes from your failure to see yourself or those around you as being in union with Christ. Because his blood is sufficient. His blood is sufficient for every sin, past, present, and future. Perhaps you know the story of Martin Luther when he tells that He feels that one night he was visited by the devil himself and that the devil unrolls the scrolls of Luther's sins in front of him and the scrolls reach from one end of the room to the other with the smallest possible font you can imagine. Scroll after scroll after scroll to which Satan says, this is just the beginning. And Martin takes a pen and across every scroll he writes, covered in the blood of Christ. Martin knew himself to be a sinner. Martin knew himself to be a saint because of Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, the fear is always that when we begin to speak in such bold language, we leave open the door that this will somehow allow people to continue in their sin because telling them that they are holy detracts from the pursuit of holiness itself. But beloved, that's not the way this works. Here's the reality. This doesn't remove the call to holy living. It makes it possible. It makes it possible. If you begin to read through Paul's letter to the Philippians and miss the introduction and miss the identification of the people of God as those in Christ whom Christ has come to purify from every sin, if you miss that, you will fall under the weight of the imperatives in this book. You will get to chapter 2 and you will see, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility of mind, let each of you esteem another as better than himself. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And you will try, and you will strive, and you will fail. Over and over and over again. And then you'll get to chapter 3. And you'll see Paul say, stretch, press on, reach out for the upward call of God in Christ. And you will try, and you will fail. And then you'll get to chapter 4, and you'll see Paul say, stand firm, stand together. Think only about things that are good and true and noble and beautiful and good, and you will try, and you will fail. If you keep this in mind, that you are living not for the holiness of God, but from it, brothers and sisters, then you will approach the task altogether differently. Look, let's go back to Theology 101. You're not sinners because you sin. You sin because you are sinners. You were conceived in sin. You were born in sin. In the same way, when you are reborn, when you are born from above, born by the Spirit, you are not holy because you live a holy life. You live a holy life Because you are holy. Because that's who you've been recreated to be. Maybe I can illustrate it for you this way. I have a young daughter. She's about six and a half. She loves to jump off of things and for me to catch her. This was easier a year ago than it is now. And the older she gets, the higher the thing she likes to jump off of. Right? So now there's this thing that's a good 20 centimeters above me that she likes to jump off of, and you know, she's getting heavier and I'm not getting stronger. <laughs> but here's the reality she doesn't jump so that she can say, If I do this, my daddy will love me. She jumps because she knows her daddy loves her. Daddy's not going to miss. Even if he has to throw himself on the ground to keep her from hitting it, which may happen soon, she knows. She's not doing this out of a desire to earn. She's doing this because whether she could earn it or not, she doesn't even know that language. She knows what's true. And what's true is that Daddy loves her. We talk frequently about the God of grace, but we live as though we serve a God who is unpredictable and fickle. We tend to lead our lives as though when, when, we, when we mess up, that that's what's going to cut the cord for us. That this may be the last time 
that God's going to forgive me. Brothers and sisters, that is not a healthy way to live. What does Paul say in Romans 8? There is nothing. Nothing. And then he lists a bunch of things. Death, nor life, height, nor depth, angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, famine, sword, nakedness, nothing in all creation that can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. That includes you. You can't separate yourself from the love of God in Christ Jesus any more than death or nakedness or peril or sword can. This is Paul's point. If you see yourself as already a saint, as one proclaimed holy by God, then you will see that it is Christ's submission, his obedience that covers yours, and then you will live not in fear, but in thanksgiving, in gratitude, in a holy and beautiful love for the one who gave himself for you. Paul wants us to see that Jesus is is necessary for us at every point in this life. And as he'll say in Romans 11, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so Paul tells us that we're, we're servants along with him in Timothy. He tells us that we're saints, that we're holy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to tell us that we're also the workmanship of God. Look at verse 6. For he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You're God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works is what Paul will say in Ephesians 2.10. You are his handiwork. Brothers and sisters, God did not stop creation in Genesis 1 at day 4. Or at day 5. Or halfway through day 6. God completed his creation until he brought it rest. God will not stop recreation until he is done and brought you into his rest. That's the goal. That's where God is bringing all of his people. There is nothing that you can do to make yourself unfinished by God. God finishes his work. So often we talk about Philippians 1.6 as the sort of quintessential verse to teach the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, and beautifully so, beautifully so. But we tend also to misunderstand the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We tend to truncate it to mean once saved, always saved, which is true so far as it goes. But what it really means is this, that the saints themselves will persevere. That they'll persevere in love and good works. That they'll persevere in holy living. That they'll persevere that, in other words, no matter how many times they fall or falter or fail, that God completes in them the work he has begun in them so that they persevere through every trial until he brings them home. In other words, perseverance of the saints reminds us that the work from beginning to end is the work of God. And we never let go of that. What does our own catechism teach us? What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace. What is sanctification? Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. From beginning to end, from alpha to omega, God is completing the work he has begun in you. Christ did not save you so that he could remake you, so that you could then finish the work of remaking on your own. 
Christ saved you so that you could be brought into this glorious fellowship of union with him by virtue of which you receive forgiveness of sins and adoption into the family of God so that God himself could perfect you and burnish you and polish you and make you shine and beautiful so that Christ might present you as his bride to himself. That's what God in Christ is doing for you and for me. And this is why Paul prays the way that he does. Paul doesn't pray that the people will hopefully be able to, you know, continue. He doesn't pray that, that, they'll, that they'll remain sort of believers if, if they're good enough and try hard enough. He prays with the confidence of one who understands that God is always at work. Do we sin? Yes. Are we responsible for our sin? Absolutely. Does God discipline sin? Without question. And yet, in the beautiful way in which God disciplined, and the beautiful way in which his providence runs, God only ever works in one direction for his people, and that is towards their salvation. That's it. Ever and always. There is no other direction that God will ever point you towards than salvation if you are in Christ. And you need to know this. You need to know this because... Moments of trial, moments of temptation, moments of doubt will arise. But the certain surety of God's unchangeable grace and the foreordained plan for you enables you to face friend and foe, failure and grief in a whole new way. It enables you to approach every task before you as one who remembers that when he wakes up in the morning, when she drinks her coffee in the morning, when you go to school in the morning, when you go to work and you're tired and your kids have not been good or they haven't slept and you and your spouse are fighting, you and your best friend are at outs, that at the end of the day, what identifies you most centrally and primarily is not any of those things, not you as parent, husband, wife, student, friend, but rather as the one who is in Christ and therefore the one that God is perfecting and the one that he has already called holy when you enter into everything you do with that mentality with that faith with that understanding of the way the gospel impacts everything we do then everything you approach will be done a little bit differently because you'll be pulling no longer from your own strength you'll be pulling no longer from trying to muster up Right? Pull, up, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Rather, you'll be leaning into and drawing from the endless reservoir of the love of God in Christ for his people. And that changes the way we interact with each other. It changes the way that we do our work. It changes the way we approach death or the dying. It changes the way we talk to those who are sick changes the way we encourage people. Why is this so important? Because, brothers and sisters, look, Paul doesn't really give imperatives here, but look at the language of one who himself is a slave and a saint in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a man who says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. What a sentence. What a reality. Joyful, constant, thanksgiving prayer is the mark of someone who understands what they have in Christ. 
It's the mark of someone who the same man who would pen the letter to the Ephesian church, right? That, that in him, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours. Not will be yours. Not could be yours. It is yours. Right now. This is what Paul is trying to show you and me as he writes this letter. The language that he uses of prayer, the language that he uses of partnership, the language that he uses of ministry and of care for one another, the language that he uses of even the way that he prays that they might be filled with the fruit of righteousness is the language of one who understands not that this could happen if the Philippians hit a certain bar, but that this will happen because he who began a good work in you will be faithful. He'll complete it. Brothers and sisters, I I don't know most of you very well. I've only been here a few times. But one thing that I can tell you is that if you are struggling to identify yourself, if you are struggling to figure out who am I, why am I doing what I'm doing, then may may this word this morning, may these few verses this morning speak to you and encourage your heart and remind you that no matter what else may be true, what is centrally true and what must remain true and will remain true because it's not up to you, but it's up to the God who saves his people, is that you are in Christ and there. Therefore, you are holy. And therefore, you are a work of God that God will never fail to complete. And if you are here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have never made profession of faith, you have never bowed the knee, you have never called upon him in faith and said, Yes, Lord, I believe that you have come, that you have died for the sins of, of those who are elect, that you are, have risen again and are ruling from the right hand of God. If those statements are not true for you, then hear me, beloved. If you will come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, there will be no rite of passage. There will be no time lapse between the time that you come in faith and the time when Paul can say to you, all the saints in Christ Jesus. It happens now. If you will come, if you will trust, if you will put your hope in Jesus Christ. And for those of you here today who have been walking a long time with the Lord Jesus, for those of you who are saints of old, if you will, Those of you who have spent many years and decades walking with the Lord, to you I would say, stand fast. Stand fast and know who you are. For as long as God chooses to keep you in this world, in the capacity in which he has you, doing whatever it is you do, you are saints. You are his workmanship. And God will not cease working upon you either. Draw upon the deep well that is the living water that flows from the Lord Jesus Christ. Find satisfaction in him this day. Know who you are by knowing whose you are. And knowing that, brothers and sisters, may you and I be a people of joyful, constant prayer, a people of gospel partnership, and a people of great rejoicing, all to his glory and praise. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, what an incredible, almost unspeakable truth that you who are perfect in every way, you who are holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, you whose glory fills the earth, 
that you would choose to take sinners, those who were hostile to you, those who were in rebellion against you, and that you would choose to call us to yourself and then to make us holy and to be able to say to those who have no ability to point to their own work and say, look at what I've done, but rather you can point to the work of your son and say, look at what I've done. Look what I've done for you. Look at what I've done for my own glory and for your good. Oh God, when we consider such things, we are amazed. But may it not end with amazement. May it end, O God, indeed, to the glory and praise of your name. May it end by hearts that rejoice in who we are and in what we have. May it end by hands that go out because they understand that all that we have is yours, that it flows from you and it flows back to you. May it do so from our hearts and our hands, from our mouths, from our lives, in our friendships and our marriages, with our children, with our co-workers, with all of those we might meet and have opportunity to speak with in airports and buses and trains. Oh God, may your name be praised by your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.